Testament reading can be found on page 864 of the Church Bible. Chapter 33, beginning at verse 7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sins, though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offences and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Thanks to, be to God for that reading. is taken from Matthew 18, reading from verse 15. Um, it's on page 985 of the Church Bible. Matthew 18 from verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen... Take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. So, Father, we pray that your hand may be upon us as we hear your word to us today. 
and that in my speaking we may discover something more of your goodness and love. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this is a tricky passage from Matthew chapter 18. And uh, I was tempted to avoid preaching on it. I was tempted either to do something in the Old Testament, or the Ezekiel passage, or go and find something else all together. Uh, because you will know that I come to you here uh, from a place of uh, significant unhappy conflict, which was not resolved by the time I uh, was to leave on a personal level. But I know too that a number of you from various uh, fellowships uh, come here uh, as a result also of difficulties uh, and, not been, and you've not felt able to stay within that fellowship. For some of you it was a while ago, for others it's uh, fairly recent. And uh, I've, even if that's not been you personally, I'm sure that you have all been in a fellowship somewhere where people have left uh, and, and felt that they have the right to shake the dust off their feet. <clears throat> uh, some of them may have left under a cloud also, but whichever way they've gone, it's never a comfortable thing for the church. And uh, sometimes in the midst of these verse, uh, this conflict, this, these verses from Matthew 18 come out and get used as a way of confronting uh, the person that we think is in the wrong and often used as a, as a way of exercising our own power. Let me tell you how wrong you have been. That's a misuse of the scripture, but it gets worse if you happen to be the accused and you use it as a way of deflecting the issue, claiming that the right procedure hasn't been uh, followed. You haven't followed the rules that are laid out, therefore I don't have to answer the accusation. That's also uh, a misuse of the scripture. Well, I have to say that I think it's a big mistake to treat the Bible as a rule book at the best of times. And I think in particular, having visited these verses again this week, I think it's a mistake to think of these verses as rules for working out differences in the church. It's not a rule book. This is not, in my view, a rule to be followed, and I'll tell you why. There are several reasons why. It's bad as a rule for the 21st century church because it comes in a whole chapter which is about conflict, sin, and division, and reconciliation. And if you look back at verses, uh, in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, you discover that it talks, does not talk about somebody else who sins, it talks about you who sinned. And if you find that you've sinned because your right hand has caused you to sin, you're supposed to chop it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, you're supposed to pluck it out. Now, I honestly don't know anyone who has taken that up as a rule for church management when we fall into sin. The, the, the text before and afterwards, both of them are parables, telling us a story 
about it. And uh, so it seems to me that we're given pictures and we're given story. So why in the middle of it should we then start to take these words as a hard and fast rule of behaviour? Perhaps Jesus is saying something else. Secondly, it's as bad as a rule because Jesus wasn't talking to 21st century Christians. He was talking to 1st century Jews. And he uses some Jewish law in verse 16 about establishing the matter with two or three witnesses. That's what the Jewish law said you ought to do. And then in verse 17, he uses a cultural saying, a Jewish cultural saying about pagans and tax collectors. And then in verse 18, he uses a rabbinic teaching about binding and loosing. This is language that would mean something to a first century Jew that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to a 21st century Christian. If you were a Jew, you could be guided by those rules with a degree of understanding by those words. Perhaps not so much for us. And in any case... Jesus, of course, wasn't establishing a community that was going to live by the rules. He was establishing a community that was going to live by the heart relationship in the spirit. So why do we think that Jesus, for whom any law was expendable if it cut across the spirit, why do we think he should be so prescriptive? as to give a rule about what to do and our behaviour when we disagree. And thirdly, it's bad as a rule because it simply doesn't take into account the complexities of being a human being. About the emotional complications, the psychological tensions and the like. It's much more difficult than a simple one, two, three-step process. But if it's bad as a rule, there are some underlying principles that Jesus is using that help us to think about it, good things about what he's saying that can help us take it to heart. And the first of those things is the desire for reconciliation. Uh, It's there, he begins in verse 15, by saying, if your brother and or sister sins. The word he uses for brother and sister is one that describes a fellow disciple, whether it's male or female. Uh, but the inference is that this is a fellow disciple with whom you are in sweet fellowship, in, with whom you are in close relationship. See, Jesus was speaking to that small group of disciples at the time. There weren't many of them. They were travelling with him, eating, drinking, sleeping, learning together. So they would know each other very well. And the brother or sister who sins is of personal interest to them. Someone in whom we would have had an emotional investment. Not necessarily someone in the same church who you might see on a Sunday but don't really have much to do with. This is a brother or sister who you have shared deep fellowship with. And therefore, whatever is broken in that fellowship does need to be mended. 
So in some manuscripts, uh, it says, um, if your brother and sister sins against you. It really is that kind of personal thing. The text we have is, if your brother or sister sins. So in the first, if he sins against you, it's as if you've got a grievance. If he sins, it's that we're concerned for his spiritual welfare. But there's a concern. Well, whatever the case, whatever action you take, whether you go to see them or not, the motivation needs to be the desire for reconciliation. So verse 15 finishes up by saying, if they listen to you, you have won them over. There it is, that's the point. That we ought to be trying to achieve the winning over of our brother and sister. Now, it may be a personal visit is the best thing to do, or it may not be the best thing to do. But the aim in whatever we do is to be reconciled. A desire for reconciliation. And that's borne out in verses uh, 19 and 20. Uh, Verse 20 is that oft-quoted text for the poorly attended prayer meeting. Yes, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And we comfort ourselves when there's just a few of us, don't we, Leslie? Yes, we do. We say, oh, never mind. Let me tell you, it is nothing to do with the poorly attended prayer meeting, this verse, all right? So, just like you don't read out the little headings of Scripture in the book here, because it's not Scripture in these paragraphs when we worship, neither will we anymore, sisters and brothers, come to the prayer meeting where there's only a few and say, oh, well, where two or three are gathered. Because it's nothing to do with that. It's linked to the bit beforehand. You see, it begins for wherever two or three of you come together in my name. For, that means it is a bit beforehand that it's working from. And the bit it's working from is, I tell you, that if two or three of you agree about anything, they will, uh, they will ask for it, it will be done. So it's about the agreement that is gained after the division that has happened back in verse 15. That's what it's saying. And if two of you come together and agree in a repentant, reconciliatory manner, then God will grant the unity of sweet fellowship. Because he forgives and covers our sins. So let's not charge a brother or sister with a sin, without the desire for reconciliation and without the willingness to, be, to pray for them in fellowship again. And while we're at it, let's not misquote verse 20 anymore. So that's the desire for reconciliation. Secondly, there's a demonstration of humility. Three times, in uh, one in verse 15, one in 16 and one in 17, the word listen comes. If they listen to you, if they will not listen to you, if they refuse to listen. That's, that's the nub of arguments, isn't it? The failure to listen. If you go to someone who's, with whom you have a grievance, actually what you don't necessarily want them to do is agree with you. You want them to listen to you and to understand what it means for you. 
But of course, if you want them to listen to you, you must be willing to listen to them. That takes humility. If you're the accuser, you perceive a wrongdoing in the other person. But they may not be aware of it. They may not be aware that they're doing it or that something is wrong in the first place. There may be extenuating circumstances you know nothing about. You may find that their side of the story speaks a very different thing than the way you have understood it. And indeed, maybe they haven't done what you say they've done in the first place. It takes a humble listener to be able to do that. To begin by saying that someone else is in the wrong, but then to find that actually it's you. But what happens if you're the accused? Well, that takes humble listening too. You know, when when we become the accused, the defences go up, don't they? We find all sorts of self-justifying reasons or deflections or being able to blame somebody else, claiming ignorance. But the key thing about humble listening is to be able to listen as if they are speaking about someone else. To be able to make an objective decision and understanding about yourself. As if what is being said is about them, someone else then we're able to accept what we hear. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for you to accept that someone else has done a bad thing? But if it's about you, then it's much more difficult to accept that something bad has been done. So along with the desire for reconciliation, there must also be a demonstration of humility that allows hearts and minds to listen and be changed. Because if there is uh, uh, to be a reconciliation, we also have to be aware of the dangers of separation. Uh, Verse 17 comes to the conclusion that if they still refuse to listen, treat them as you would a pagan and tax collector. Well, pagan and tax collectors were two categories of people that ordinary Jews would seriously avoid. We know that. Pagans, well, they were just pagans, and tax collectors, they were collaborators with the enemy anyway. You didn't hang around with them. A common saying of the time they had, do not associate with pagans and tax collectors. Well, in our day, tax collectors are welcome amongst us. Yes, they are. (laughs) Honestly. Because there's nothing wrong with being a legal, law-abiding tax collector. They have a good job to do. And pagans are welcome also, if they want to come, because how else are they going to hear the good news? So we don't exclude people from the fellowship in the way Uh, that way today because we are in a different context. Yet there is behaviour which, if we persist in it, will put us outside the fellowship of believers. People do have to be stood down from positions of leadership if they fall short of expectations in their behaviour. People have to have their behaviour limited 
to where and when they can do things if they are a danger to our children or vulnerable adults for safeguarding reasons. Clergy are removed for behaviours unbecoming of a clerk in holy orders. Preachers who preach any old claptrap are stopped from doing so. See, we live in a world, though, don't we, where we, we don't want to call out sin. People can be what they want to be and how they want to be. We're told the church ought to catch up with the way that society thinks of things, the ways of the world. And indeed, some churches do adopt a theology that simply says God loves you as you are. So don't look for anything else. No need for change. No need for repentance. You're just loved. Well, it's true, isn't it, that God loves you just as you are. Yes, he does. But he loves you so much that he calls you and equips you to become what he has made you to be. And that means we start to live by different values when we come to Christ. We start to imbibe the values of heaven and live them out in the world. The fellowship of Christians looks different to the world. The world is all about getting. But Christians live, learn to live by giving. Our world stores up excess. But Christians are learning to live by what is enough. The the world trades on selfishness. That's what the adverts are all about. They feed our selfish desires. But Christians believe in serving. The world is a world of rights. Christians uphold responsibility. The world thinks identity is about the individual. But Christians find their identity in the community of faith. And you can see it in the picture, illustrates it really. If you go on living by values lived out by the world that are in conflict with values lived out by, in the kingdom of God, then we will find ourselves in an uncomfortable place. We won't be able to stay around very long. And if we go on in that way, well, we may well be asked to leave. There really is a danger of division that we ought to recognise. And then fourthly, finally, there's a development of culture. Because any group that meets together and does something develops its own culture. And we know that sometimes those group cultures go go wrong when uh, when we hear it in the health service, when cultures of uncaring happen. We hear it in financial uh, houses where there's a culture of, uh, uh, of embezzlement. We know that there's a culture in the parliament of expenses claims and all of that. We hear it all the time. Any group develops culture. And the way we look at the world and the way we take our place in the world, sh- our shared belief and the values that we put into practice means that together we shape our behaviours. We are becoming like Jesus by our culture. And that's what just, just what Jesus is saying there in verse 18 when he says, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth 
is bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Because you see, there is a hidden dimension to what we're doing. The world wants to deny that. They want to see us as a bunch of socially-minded, collectively like-minded people. But there is a spiritual dynamic that is changing us from inside out. We are, as I said a fortnight ago, the place where heaven and earth meets. The people among whom God dwells. So our time here is shaping us not only for the future in this world, but for the future for eternity. If people are going to get an idea of what heaven is like, they will see it through us, in us, and amongst us. And so we do have ways of behaving that are different from the world. And we do look for growth in each other, becoming more like Jesus. That's what our life together is about, developing that culture. And so, you see, in a way, we should expect that these conflicts should arise. Bringing them out into the open that they may be dealt with, that the Spirit of the Lord may cleanse his people. Because we're engaged in a spiritual battle in the world and we all bring that battle, uh, the world, to the church. And sometimes we find that the world is deeply rooted in us. It has to be got out. And so maybe sometimes people will have to point it out to us and show us our own sin. So dealing with conflict in the church, well, it can make us or it can break us. It can unite us or it can separate us. But making these verses a rule by which we do things, will lead to separations, in my view. But approaching these issues with the principles, the underlying principles that Jesus was talking of, of desiring reconciliation, demonstrating humility, of knowing there's a danger of separation and developing our culture, at least it means we face our difficulties and our disagreements with maturity and with growth. And God will honour our struggles. Amen.